to make a big change, it has to be institutional change. So we make our own decisions about what we eat, but it's, you know, go to this place or that place, go to the grocery store and choose from the selection that's there. I think that if individuals are more aware of it, that changes them in a way. So if you think, you know, a hundred more people go to the farmer's market every weekend and buy from local growers, it creates a hundred people who now care about where their food comes from. Welcome, you're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the role of academic institutions in climate action. Hello, I'm Meg Weathers. And I'm Marlon Gant. Welcome to season four of Amplifier. Today we are discussing the role of land management in climate change mitigation and how institutions like Emory University can support sustainably sourced food. According to the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, agriculture, forestry, and other land use contributes to about 23% of the total anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and accounts for over 70% of the global ice-free land surface. As climate change worsens, terrestrial ecosystems and biodiversity are becoming more vulnerable to climate extremes and weathering. The use of sustainable land management practices can help reduce land degradation, maintain land productivity, and potentially lessen the impacts of climate change. Take peatlands, for example. Peatlands are wetlands that store a lot of organic matter because their waterlogged conditions prevent the full decomposition of plants. Peatlands are very important to the mitigation of climate change. While they only cover about 3% of global land area, they store about 30% of the world's soil carbon, making them the largest terrestrial carbon store. Due to the large amount of carbon that peatlands store, it's important to avoid disturbing them so as to avoid releasing large quantities of carbon. Unfortunately, up to 80% of peatlands have already been damaged from drainage, burning, mining, and conversion for agriculture. Our colleague, Lauren Ballatin, spoke with Dr. Francisca Tannenberger, director of the Greifswald Meyer Center at the COP26 Peatlands Pavilion to learn more about the importance of sustainable land management practices, especially when it comes to peatlands. So hi, this is Lauren Ballatin and I'm here at COP26 with Francisca and we are at the Peatland Pavilion. So um, I'm excited to speak with you and I was just wondering if you could start by telling me who you are and um, 
who you're with, what organization. Yeah, thank you so much. My name is Franziska Tanneberger. I work at the Greifswald Meyer Center in Germany and I work about peatlands. I'm a peatland scientist and we are the first time here at the COP with a full peatland pavilion. Great. So could you tell us more about what's going on in this pavilion and what kind of events you're having here? Yeah. Uh, we are co-organizers together with uh, UN Environment Program, the Global Peatlands Initiative, IOCN UK Peatland Program, Wetlands International and other universities. And uh, we are here because peatlands are uh, a very important natural carbon store. So 3% of the global land area are peatlands. So the area is what we estimate 4 million square kilometers. And we are here standing in front of the global peatland map where you can see which countries have peatlands in their land area. And we try to make countries aware that this is a, a very important natural-based solution, a natural climate solution. Because if the, when a peatland is wet, it is uh, very beneficial for people, for the environment. But many peatlands globally are drained and then they release a lot of CO2. Okay, so thank you for giving us that description. And thinking about peatlands and land use in general and what's been happening at the negotiations at COP26, if you could just describe... Um, has there been a lot of discussion around it in the negotiation rooms, a lot of discussion in the side events? Um, what, what have you been seeing going on at yeah. COP26? So I spent most of my time here at the pavilion area because we have just get so much interest here. Um, I'm not involved in the negotiations. What I hear is that, that nature, that working with nature, plays uh, even a more important role than in previous COPs. It may be reflected in the cover decision as well, and I think this is very, very important. And um, I also noticed that there is a big interest here uh, in, uh, for the Peatland Pavilion. So uh, we get a lot of delegates coming by, looking at the Peatland map, uh, coming to our side events. We even had Michelle Obama here, but we missed to take a picture, which was very sad. <laughs> um, so I think um, it is very good that many people now notice that this is uh, something to consider. And re with regard to the also negotiations and the country approaches, also to include peatlands in the nationally determined contributions in the NDCs. And there are countries like Uganda in Africa. Uganda is a peatland-rich country and they very recently did it. And so we also try to showcase examples of countries that are really doing a lot in terms of better peatland management, better land use on peat soils. Another country I would like to, to um, underline here is Indonesia. They have a big pavilion with a lot of events about peatlands and uh, they have rebetted, uh, according to their data, already 3.5 million hectares of peatlands. Um, so they have raised the water table again, so the peat soil is more wet again, it releases less CO2, which is really crucial to fight the climate crisis. Thank you. So when thinking about what you think sustainable land management and peatlands look like, could you just describe a little more with what you hope to see in the future? I know you got into that a little bit just now, but um, what you're hoping to see as far as uh, yeah, but, what but, sustainable land management will. Yeah. What I really hope to see is a new generation of farmers um, approaching this differently than the previous ones. And the previous ones didn't know about the big uh, emissions that they actually created with farming, uh, with deeply draining peat soils. So it, you cannot accuse them of anything. But, but now we have the facts, we have the knowledge, and we need new farming approaches on peat soils. And I also know from, from California, so for example, there are people working on it. So we call it paludi culture. Um, so this would be wet agriculture or wet forestry on, on wet peat soils. And there are very many promising plant species that could be used, like sedges or reed or um, taifa, cattail. So what we are also showing here in the Peatland Pavilion is uh, examples of uh, building materials, of uh, pictures of such sites, 
where we see innovative new farming approaches. And we also invited uh, agriculture students here, we invited farm organizations here to actually um, stimulate collaboration in this regard. Thank you. And then one of the last things we're wondering is just that our podcast, again, is geared towards a younger audience, um, college students, youth, and just thinking about um, the audience who will be listening to this, what kind of actionable steps do you think they could be taking to support what you're working on with peatlands, uh, sustainable land use? How could they get involved in, in that kind of work? Yeah, it's not so easy. So one 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 very simple thing is to use peat-free substrates when you go to a, a, to buy something for your garden. Um, for many other like food products, dairy products, uh, often they are produced on drained peat soils, but you do not know. You cannot really tell. So there's no label telling this is. Uh, peatland positive or not um, but uh, generally I mean for everybody who, who thinks maybe to get involved in land management in agriculture in water management keep an eye on soils keep an eye on carbon rich soils because they are a very important component of our landscape and they can be really used very well for climate action and you get a lot of additional benefits so keep in mind that soils matter and, and that the, the carbon in the soil is, is, is crucial. After hearing Dr. Tannenberger speak about the importance of properly managing peatlands and her hope that a new generation of farmers will approach land management differently, we were interested to learn how sustainable agricultural practices are being implemented in our home state of Georgia. So we spoke with Daniel Parson, an award-winning farmer educator in Oxford, Georgia. What sustainable practices do you incorporate on the Oxford College Organic Farm? Our system is maintained through crop rotation and cover crops. Those are the two biggest components of our system. And I think that goes to the sustainability because the crop rotation helps us with all those issues of pests and disease and weed pressures that we would otherwise be using interventions for, like in a conventional system. They're going to spray the sides, the pesticides or herbicides for those things. So we use crop rotation so that we don't need to use those kind of interventions. Along with that planning of rotation, we have cover crops. And the cover crops are grown before and after every cash crop. So the cash crop comes out, cover crop goes in, it gets plowed in, and then we grow a cash crop. And that cover crop holds the soil when we're not using it. It improves organic matter in the soil through the grasses and other plants that we're growing. And it also helps with our pest management. So we grow these flowering plants that bring in beneficial insects that are the natural enemies of our pests. And really that's the core component of our system. Other things we do include mulching with natural mulch. We use drip irrigation, which conserves water. We reduce our tillage. We haven't eliminated it and we're definitely a tillage system, but we try to reduce it any chance we get. Our greenhouse has passive cooling systems, so we're not using energy to do that. We use high tunnel, which itself is plastic, but it helps us to grow during the winter when we otherwise can't produce. Every little thing we do, we try to make more sustainable. In my opinion, one of the most sustainable things that you can do is grow a good crop. Because if we can grow more on a smaller space, then we use fewer resources overall. Thank you for elaborating. As a follow-up question, I am also curious if you are aware of how many other farms there are in the area that utilize some of the same techniques as you. 
And what are some of the barriers that are preventing them from becoming organic farms? So farms are not all the same. We know that. And it's really hard when we start to think of types of farms. If I say, well, organic farmers do this or conventional farmers do that, it's really hard to make those distinctions because the lines are very blurred. You know, there are a lot of conventional farmers that will do better management, use cover crops, use some of these techniques. I think what you find is that on average, a conventional farm is more likely to use a conventional system. And and as far as people who are doing the sustainable practices and are not certified organic, I think a lot of them, it is the paperwork and the certification process that keeps them from being certified organic. I think a lot of that has to do with the history of farming and just how we tend to make decisions. We tend to make decisions based on what's worked well for us in the past. So I kind of have an advantage. I started on an organic farm. That was my first experience. So I don't know anything else. But I think for those who are conventional, it's hard for them to really make that switch, make that leap of faith that it will work out. Is climate change a common topic at the agricultural conferences you attend? And do you feel that it is adequately addressed in the agriculture community? Climate change comes up in the agricultural community. People talk about it in, I feel like every situation I've been in, people are willing to talk about it. You know, it's definitely in the organic conferences, but I've heard it in the conventional things that I've attended to. Farmers are receptive to it who might otherwise not be because of what they've seen. It is being addressed, but I think the problem is we don't know exactly what to do about it. So we know that agriculture has a role to play in terms of cause of climate change and then also dealing with the effects of it. In the organic conferences, Some of the themes are resilience, as I mentioned, and these systems that we're developing to be resilient. And so in some ways, it's doubling down on the methods that we're already using. Because we don't know exactly what to do, I think it may be adequately addressed doesn't really sound quite right. I think for the organic community, a lot of the solutions to climate change problems are the same solutions that we've experienced for other challenges. How do you think we can effectively encourage individuals to purchase foods that help support healthy soil and a balanced climate? To make a big change, it has to be institutional change. So we make our own decisions about what we eat, but it's, you know, go to this place or that place, go to the grocery store and choose from the selection there. And we're often not in a place that has those choices available. I think that if individuals are more aware of it, that changes them in a way. So if you think, you know, a hundred more people go to the farmer's market every weekend and buy from local growers who are doing sustainable practices, that makes a small difference in the grand scheme of things. It creates a hundred people who now care about where their food comes from. And it makes it just a little bit easier for the institutions to make that change. And I think we all are part of institutions that can make a change and holding them to it is important. To learn more about the role that institutional change can take in climate action, 
We spoke with Claire Barnes, an Emory University alumna who has studied the intersections between food, religion, and politics. So Claire, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your area of study? Yes. So um, my name is Claire Barnes, and I graduated from Emory in 2019. Uh, I'm currently a graduate student at Yale Divinity School studying religion and ecology. Uh, And I have broad interests in food and ritual, climate histories, and food in American archives. Would you share with us some of the roles that you took on as an undergraduate student at Emory University and uh, maybe specifically some of the work you did with Slow Food Emory? Uh, At Emory, um, I was involved in the Sustainable Food Committee. Uh, The Emory uh, delegation to the COP conferences, specifically COP23, and then Slow Food Emory. Uh, So Slow Food Emory is a university chapter of Slow Food USA. And Slow Food is actually an international movement. And it was started um, by a man named Carlo Petrini and a group of activists in Italy in 1986. And these collective founders um, protested the intended location of a McDonald's at the Spanish Steps in Rome. And the movement has kind of evolved into this global movement and they advocate for good, clean and fair food for all. And they also are advocates for gastronomic pleasure and a slow pace of life. Uh, And every chapter has its own like local goals. And Slow Food Emory hosts and hosted a variety of events, including cooking demos with seasonal ingredients, uh, volunteer opportunities at farms and food banks in Atlanta, and educational talks with food scholars and activists. Um, And in these events, we've often partnered with Emory Dining to increase uh, the visibility of Emory sourcing practices and definitions, which are pretty unique to Emory sustainability, and those definitions um, include, you know, local, seasonal, sustainability, or sustainable, etc. Okay, and just following up on that, I did want to know, like, what progress have you seen um, Emory and other universities make in their food sourcing? So Emory has a unique definition of locally sourced food. Um, instead of having a system based on mileage, Emory Sustainability and Bon Appetit have defined locality as an eight state radius. Um, This is different than other universities uh, as Emory and Bon Appetit envision locality in terms of um, promoting an interlaced Southeastern economy in a food region. Bon Appetit is a management company and they offer food services to different universities and corporations. Uh, And the Emory Sustainable Food Committee, which I was a part of, a part of when, as a student, and it's comprised of students and faculty and staff members. Um, they have set the Emory Sustainable um, Sustainable Food Guidelines for food service purchasing, and they write of their definition of a locality. And I'll quote: So they say they want to support a vibrant southeastern economy, preserve open space and agricultural landscapes and provide easier access for direct relationships with farmers and help preserve the regional farming culture. Since I've left, there have been, I think, two major changes to Emory's food system. 
Um, one is that dining and campus life have made a commitment to food security, a food security program for students collaborating with the Eagle Food Co-op. And it allows um, students to request meal vouchers without immediate explanation. Um, and then second, which is kind of cool, is that the Office of Sustainability has partnered and has been part of the Working Farmers Fund, which is a subsection of the Conservation Fund, um, which supports young farmers in viable farmland about um, in a hundred mile radius from Atlanta. And it gives them access, these farmers, to financing and lease loan agreements. And what Emory has done is that they've committed to buying um, produce from these new farms for Emory Dining and Emory Healthcare. So those are kind of the two developments to food sourcing that I've seen since I've left Emory. When you're discussing the, the difference in the definition of local between mileage and this seemingly regional definition that Emory has, what are some of the pros and cons of that that you see? I think a mile radius definition is definitely easier to promote and define and for um, consumers to understand um, that, you know, this produce is coming from a mile radius. And I mean, there are different um, definitions of local in terms of a mile radius. So even within like the mileage definition, there are pros and cons. Um, but, you know, like different um, United States, like governmental agencies have used that definition. And a lot of the times, like grant applications, they're very, I think it's more favorable to have um, a mileage definition in that sense. But when you have that mileage definition, say there's a great farmer or producer at the edge of that radius. So when you have a mile radius, sometimes you're cutting off different regional farmers that contribute to the larger economy of the region and the state. And so I think that's the, the pro in having um, a regional definition of locality is that you are seeing the food region and its history and its economy is intertwined. And you're saying, I'm going to contribute to this, even though it doesn't meet the mileage standard. All right. Thank you. And sort of along the lines um, with the progression that you've seen Emory um, making their food sourcing, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the importance of that progression. Yeah, so I think that in terms of food security measures, it's extremely important for Emory to invest in and promote student welfare, um, especially since the Office of Sustainability is now housed under um, the division of, of campus life. And so when thinking about sustainability as a, an overall um, especially food as, as integral to student experience. I think that's really important, the progress in that. And I mean, of course, it's an issue for all universities to provide adequate funding for food security and sustainability programs, and also for staff members really to be compensated adequately for their labor, um, especially like faculty of color and those in marginalized groups whose emotional labor and the burden sometimes of educating colleagues on the link between racism and food injustice, that often goes uncompensated. And so I think as we move towards centering food security and sovereignty measures on campuses, we have to look at the labor of our staff members as well. 
And then, of course, I think it's important on on a larger scale that climate change and food production um, are linked, and so should climate and food justice be linked. So I think that's important, and why why that progress is important. So moving forward, what further steps do you think Emory could take to be more sustainable in its food sourcing? Yeah, I think definitely in these pandemic times, um, food sustainability has been challenging, especially since food waste um, right now at, at Emory is a combination between like the actual food material and then um, to-go materials that um, during the pandemic, plastic materials were used to, of course, ensure the safety of faculty and staff and students during the pandemic. But hopefully Emory will transition to reusable items in the future because those are also more cost effective. And I think that Emory, it, in continuing to finance local farmers through sourcing practices and the Emory Farmers Market, I think they continue doing that. That would be great. And then the the sustainable food guidelines, I think, were published in the early 2000s. And of course, there's been a lot of progress and um, student activism and work. And I think that updating the sustainable food guidelines to include the current state of food on college campuses is definitely the next step. I know that it is in progress and they're working towards that. Um, so I think really working on publishing that and then helping and educating students on, on why that's important is kind of the next steps. What actions do you think students could take to support this progress and other sustainability initiatives? Yeah, so I think that students um, can advocate specifically here for a food bank on campus. I know that the Eagle Food Co-op is not on campus, um, and that kind of is a barrier for some students for accessing it or knowing about it. It's not really an essential location. And also tying in a food security program for staff members. I don't think that has really been developed. And I think that if students could advocate um, for the health of themselves and also for um, the staff that serve them daily, I think that would be an important step. Um, I think that students, of course, can uh, I used to work at the farmer's market um, as an intern with the Office of Sustainability. And if they can, um, I think it would be great if they could support the local farmers there and the food producers there at the farmer's market. And um, also being involved in the educational garden project is um, a great avenue to be involved. And I think whenever I've been asked this before with for students, I think it's always and I've always said this, that I think food is inherently intersectional. And so finding like, your passion and your story is important. And trying out different types of scholarship and activism, I think, is the first step to finding your niche in this broad discourse of sustainability. And I, I find that the pace of, of climate change activism, which is quite a fast pace, especially with like an emphasis on extinction now, um, is, is sometimes very helpful for policy, but not really for helping students deal and for everyone to deal with their eco-anxiety. And I, it, it isn't always compatible with slow thinking or healing or being a mode which our current state of capitalism uh, and capitalistic production refuses to us. So I think if 
as students, like when you can find time to breathe and to slow down and to reflect on like intentional living and studying and eating, like if you can take it, take it, even if it's 30 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes, I know sometimes like slow living and eating um, can be a privilege, but I think the work that Emory is doing to promote food security and sovereignty enables students to do that more. And I wish that there would be um, a link between kind of the way that students eat on campus and the way that they're allowed to be and exist in the world and to evolve as scholars and, and whatnot. I also think that food education is extremely important and a type of education that recognizes that the structural inequalities in our food system are linked to broader inequalities in our society, in our healthcare system. Um, a lot of what we tried to do at Slow Food Emory was to connect um, slow food and gastronomic pleasure with the rights of workers and with racial justice and with and with gender equality and all of these things that um, tie into food injustice. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about like what a just transition would look like from like our consumption economy to a regenerative economy. And I do think that food on college campuses have a role to play in this. And I'm definitely excited to see where our college campuses will take food sustainability. Since speaking with Francisca, Daniel, and Claire, parties at COP26 recognized the need to improve land use. 45 governments pledged to take urgent action and shift to more sustainable farming methods. More than 100 world leaders committed to ending and reversing deforestation by 2030. And the Coronavia joint work on agriculture was adopted which addresses key issues associated with agriculture in a holistic manner through a series of international workshops. However, even with this progress, many decisions remain to be made about agriculture next year at COP27, and local action remains a key component in this process. As Claire mentioned, institutions are making strides in reducing their environmental impacts, but more can and should be done. Thank you for joining us today. This week's episode was written and produced by Marlon Gant, Jaya Brizendine, and Meg Withers, featuring an interview by Lauren Ballatin. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Smits and the graphics by Tyler Stern. <laughs>